It's June 25th. We wish you a very happy Friday morning here on Real Talk. As a matter of fact, do I say we wish you a happy morning today? It's kind of a messed up morning, isn't it? It's been kind of a messed up week. I don't know if we wish it a happy morning to you. I, 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 I say these things like they just roll off the tongue because mm. we, we say them often, but, but I don't know if it's a happy morning. I'm, I want to start the show today reading you a few emails. Yesterday was... Uh, how, how do you describe yesterday? We're, we're sitting there talking to a, a you know Grand Chief Treaty Eight, and and the news breaks that uh, it's seven hundred fifty one bodies, seven hundred fifty one bodies uh, discovered um, outside a former residential school or near a former residential school. Uh, Kawasis First Nation making that announcement yesterday, and it, you of course have heard that. I know that you, if you're tuning into Real Talk, if you're a real talker, you're an engaged citizen. You're here, and you're probably monitoring other news sources as well to to uh, you know know what's going on around you to be paying attention to what's making news and and i would imagine if you're like me um and i would imagine just if you're a if you're a regular human being that experiences regular feelings and and uh what you might expect to be um you know the type of reaction that would come along with devastating mind-numbing mind-blowing heart-shattering news like we keep hearing uh, then I don't know if it's a good morning. I don't know if it was a good afternoon yesterday. I- I'm not sure. You know, 215 children buried outside a residential school in Kamloops and, and 104 bodies discovered. Children uh, outside a residential school in Brandon, Manitoba and 38 outside a former residential school in Regina. 751. Cowess's Saskatchewan. 35 in Lestock, Saskatchewan. 180 outside of school in Pennsylvania, and I hate to say it, but more to come. So we gather here, I guess, in community, and I want to be positive, and we want to infuse some uh, optimism into your day, but some days it just kind of feels like, I don't know, I feel like I went through yesterday totally numb. Yesterday, right after the show, as a matter of fact, I went and I got my second vaccine, uh, fully vaxxed, which means right now I feel absolutely terrible, quite frankly, this morning. But you know, I wouldn't miss a morning with you real talkers, but I am sick as a dog right now, but it's worth it. It's 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 better than getting sick. It's better than getting COVID-19. But I felt strange about celebrating it yesterday. It was quite an experience. If you've, if you've been vaccinated, if you've got your first or second shot, if your experience is like mine, I went to one of these big uh, you know, what, what do they call them? Like the, the inoculation clinic or whatever it's called. It's like, a, you know, a big thing in a, uh, a big open space in a strip mall that might have been like a, um, you know, I don't know, a big clothing store, or maybe a grocery store, a huge liquor store or something. And it's closed and it's like, you know, six or seven thousand square feet, just this big room. And they've they've moved in. Uh, booth after booth after booth, just rows of booths. And and yesterday I was I walked in there and I was I totally underestimated what I was getting into. I thought I was going to some pharmacy in a part of town that I wasn't familiar with. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't realize there were going to be hundreds of people there. What an impressive operation sitting there noticing. I mean, just everybody doing such a good job. The security guards at the front and then the intake professionals and, and then the nurses and the communicators. And they've got their little signs to let you know which booth opens up next. And and then you have nursing students or nurses that are on these these rolling carts and they're bringing the the needles. I asked when I said, how many vaccinations are you doing a day? She goes, oh, man, like she goes hundreds, probably. And there was this real kind of a. Uh, celebratory atmosphere in there because every single person I'm looking around and I was trying to respect people's privacy and obviously you're not going to take any photos or anything like that but I'm looking around and every single person is like they're getting their shot today 
This is a big moment. There's been months and well over a year that's gone into people waiting to get these shots. It's a big deal. And I was looking around and I started noticing things that I don't know if it's weird for me to notice. And I don't know if it's weird for me to talk about, but I was in my own thoughts. I didn't say much yesterday. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and, 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 it, and I'm noticing that of all the people that are working there and of all the people that are in there, there's, there's much diversity on display. Like, you know, age and ethnicity and religion and some, some telltale markers. And um, I, I just sort of thought, you know, this is kind of what it's all about when we talk about Canada. Isn't this one of the things that we're proud of? And at the same time, I've got this other feeling kind of pulling on me on the other side going, do we have anything to be proud of right now? And I know that some of you will say, oh, you're being dramatic. Uh, you know, I know that some of you, I mean, I've, I've seen some elected officials right now. All they're, all they're doing is promoting their big Canada Day barbecues that are coming up because it's Alberta reopening and they're going to serve freedom burgers. Like there's just no awareness of the thought process that's going on right now. And I know that people are going to start cracking on those that are having conversations around canceling Canada Day. I mean, I know even with our unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll that only about, and again, unscientific, but only about one in five of you, based on how you responded to our Twitter poll several days ago, only about one in five of you say that you're planning on so-called canceling Canada Day. But I would suspect that you will observe July 1st with mixed feelings, with a certain element of heaviness this time around, maybe more sensitivity. Uh, whether this lasts forever or whether this is unique to this year, to July 1st, 2021, I don't know. But I just know that a lot of people have a lot on their minds with regards to what typically up until just this past year. I mean, there were there, there was some controversy around Canada 150. You remember that a few years ago? There was talk about that, and there were demonstrations uh, on Parliament Hill in Ottawa, and, and it's not exactly new, but for the entire nation to be wrestling with and grappling with feelings around reconciliation that start with you know ra wrestling and, and grappling with the truth about residential schools, I know that this one is different. And so I'm having all these thoughts yesterday, just looking around, and I mean, I've just, I showed up today, I guess, just as one of you i showed up because i know that there's a community that that live this morning into this afternoon and when the podcast hits and everything else there's going to be thousands of people literally that for the most part i think are in the same boat thousands of people that are going to acknowledge that this is an uncomfortable and important feeling that we're experiencing people are heartbroken people are devastated many people survivors of residential schools indigenous elders are being re-traumatized as we speak. Canadian Association of Journalists is talking to its members right now about sensitivity and reporting and understanding some of the challenges here. And these conversations are so important, but they're tough, aren't they? And they're exhausting. So much so that when I do something as, as reflexive as wishing you a happy Friday and a good morning I check myself almost right away because we have a stack of emails I mean we get email our email traffic's excellent and we appreciate those of you that are in touch to talk at ryanjesperson.com but in particular we have a lot of emails this morning they started coming in yesterday from people like Ben the subject line of Ben's email just says ashamed he says I was listening to your podcast Ryan with, with your announcement 
uh, where those bodies of 751 First Nations children were found, and I couldn't help but feel ashamed. I've been a proud Canadian for years. I feel like we live in the greatest country on the planet. And now with the revolution, the revelations out of, of Kamloops and th- this newest number, 751 of silenced children, I've never been more ashamed of this country. I'm at a loss as to what I can do. I don't know how to process all this, and I'm fighting back tears because this is so awful. This is not the Canada that I was taught in school. That from Benjamin. Got an email from Robert. He says, I worry, Ryan, that this email might be a little too on the nose or maybe a little too personal. It's really not about me in these conversations. I don't want to add to anybody's pain or trauma. I was encouraged by someone to send this to you. My Métis cousin and I discussed this very topic this morning. Who are we? And he said, and I heard on the show today, he's talking about yesterday on Thursday's show, our conversation with the next 30 panelists. He says, I I heard you ask the question, who are we with regards to Albertans or Canadians or where we go moving forward? Who are we? And Robert says, I believe me trying to answer that question for myself. It ties well to the question of Alberta or of Canada. Who am I? Well, it's complicated. I'm a proud member of the Alberta Métis community, but that's not all. He says, my father's Métis. My mother is a white land stealing settler with deep religious beliefs whose ancestry is British. I have white skin. And by all observations, I would appear as a white man. I am both an oppressor and the oppressed. And it's complicated. And I've learned that sharing stories is an effective way for us to understand. My grandpa was my best friend when I was a kid. He's the person who I'd stay with when my parents traveled or picked me up after school, or or he was my pal to play nine holes with. He passed a couple years ago, Alzheimer's, but he lived a long life and I loved him dearly. And last night I was in a discussion with my father about ancestry and I have so much to learn. I said to my dad, why didn't grandpa share more about our indigenous past? He was ashamed. A lot of his generation was. And I said, well, I guess one small blessing was that with this pretty white skin, we didn't have to experience racism in our family. Dad says to me, not so, my son. Your grandfather's brother looked the most, quote, Indian of them all and was constantly targeted by police, was often treated poorly. Just for the way he looked, by all accounts, he was an amazing person, an amazing spirit. But he despised being referred to as Indian or Métis. My great uncle's shame and pain drove him to drink, and eventually he died by suicide. This is not a unique story by any means, but it shoots a massive hole through my story that our family escaped the intergenerational trauma of racism. So what is Alberta or Canada, in my view? We're a structure built on the pillars of pain, trauma, and tragedy but wrapped in a veneer of privilege and entitlement. What we're experiencing is what it looks like without the veneer, and it hurts. You can't privilege your way out of 751 or 215 precious souls being left behind. For me, says Robert, the important question isn't who are we, but who are we going to be? That's from Robert. And let me read this one from Rob, who said, I'm feeling overwhelmed with everything first unmarked graves at residential school sites shocking me to my core i'm a proud canadian but this is not the canada i thought i knew i'm not trying to compare residential school 
crises to other historically extreme events, but the similarities are undeniably there and it's awful. And I don't know what to do and I don't know what to feel. I see comments on social media downplaying this and I read stories of racially motivated attacks happening in our city. The city of St. Albert, just north of Edmonton, two hijabi women attacked at knife point just the other day. Police confirming. Robert says, I don't know what to do. I feel despair and embarrassment and grief. And I feel like the bad guys are winning. He says, I've never been very political. I'm, I'm an engineer. Says, but every time I see Alberta's premier and ministers, I, I feel rage. Healthcare, education, just generally being terrible. Every time I see the premier's fake smile proclaiming this to be the best summer ever, my blood boils. He says, I'm so sick and tired of the way that people blindly vote, this lack of accountability. He says, what can we do in the meantime to keep the bad guys from winning because of the incompetence of our leaders? Rob says, I'm not sure what I'll accomplish with this email, but I'll tell you, it's been therapeutic just getting some feelings out. That from Rob. Thanks for making the time, Rob. You can keep the comments coming. We'll be keeping an eye on our hashtag today, of course. Real Talk RJ, that hashtag is powered by the team at Park Power, providing internet, electricity, and natural gas in the province of Alberta. They've been doing so now for coming up on 10 years. That number 10 is significant. 10% of profits as well, going back into the community as part of their profit-sharing commitment. This is a team of people from customer service and sales representatives, installers, all the way through that live where they work. They understand some of the challenges of these local communities. And of course, with the promo code 2021-REALTALK, you know you're going to save 70 bucks off your first bill. The intrepid and incredible producer of this program, Sarah Hoyles, has also just reminded me that I've not even yet mentioned Bitcoin well. I've not even yet officially started the show. So, Sam, why don't we do that? Why don't I remind you that each and every day I'm rattled. I'm not going to lie to you. Real talkers, we're in this one together today. I feel like shit. My brain's turned around. My heart hurts. And I'm thrilled that you're here with me. Mm. Hey, this morning, this is a morning. These are conversations we're going to have together. So when the host screws up and forgets something and the team's got us back and we figure out it's no big deal, we'll be back to meaningful conversation. I'll tell you, every single day we're going to keep bringing you that. Bitcoin Well makes it possible. They were with us from the very beginning. Want to let you know right now, nobody's hiding the fact that crypto is in a free fall right now. So what's prompting it? What's actually going on? If you have questions about that, you can be in touch with the team at Bitcoin Well. They've got people ready to talk to you over the phone, even meet with you in person, observing all protocols at Bitcoin Well under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. You know, there's a lot of talk right now about, of course, what Canada needs to look like and what conversations need to happen. This uh, is going to be a difficult uh, period of time for people in this country from from very different backgrounds, uh, most especially indigenous people that have been talking about this for a long time. have been talking about the, the, the challenges that their communities have faced, the racism that they faced, the colonialism, all of these impacts. Well, it just also happens to be Pride Month. Right. And we've been talking about that on the show, obviously, with a number of different interviews. Uh, One more week in June as we 
celebrate pride, but also have those difficult conversations. What was that quote a couple of weeks ago on the show? Something like, you know, what was it? Protest is rooted in joy or something like that. Or discomfort can be rooted in joy. There, what was there it? can be joy in protest. There can be joy in protest. And, and we've experienced that. Uh, Jeffrey Shalafu, uh, kind enough to join us here. Uh, Jeffrey, born and raised in Amiskwichiwaskihekin, otherwise known as Edmonton. He's joining us today representing the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Do I say happy pride? Thanks for making time to be with us this morning. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, Ryan. Thank you. Yes, definitely. It is happy pride, happy Indigenous History Month as well. Thanks for having me on the show and, and bringing my perspective, holding this space uh, for Indigenous peoples, especially in this time. Um, and, and like you mentioned, also pride. So thank you for inviting a two-spirit person, a two-spirit being onto your show today. I, I'm glad to be here. Well, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning and I'm, I'm looking forward to what I know is going to be some real talk. I'm already picking up on that vibe from you. So I'm excited to have you here. But Jeffrey, just let, let me ask you as a, uh, you, uh, a citizen of a Métis Nation, as a Métis man, th- this news yesterday, these 751 bodies discovered and, and, I, and I listed off some of the other uh, the word discoveries just sounds so, so so insufficient and so glossing over. You'll have to pardon me for that. But these grisly and horrific discoveries, these young children's bodies in Kamloops and Brandon and Regina and Lestock and Cowessess and others, these bodies that have been recovered, these young children. How are you processing it as a Métis man? Yeah, it's been it's been some horrifying, horrific news for many in my community. Um, you know, I I. I it's hard. I don't think it's really set in yet. I think over the last uh, uh, few weeks, uh, since the first discovery of the first 215, we've really looked at um, the depth of what that, that really truly means. It's the imagine the, the parents, the, the, the family, the community that surrounded all of those young little beings so many, so many years ago. Um, even if that were to happen today, the, the amount of trauma, the amount of impact that has from that onward right until now that that visceral response in my own body there's there is an anger uh there is a sadness in there that uh, i've been trying to navigate for a bit of time now and navigate that with many others in our two-spirit community and our membership my friendship um yeah it's just devastating news but uh you know it's not a surprise uh it just reignites some of that anger some of that uh some of that stuff that you know we've all known that was there uh but now that that is finally succinctly uh coming forward and we're finding these lost children these taken children so many years ago it's just we're we're getting through it as a community especially as a two-spirit community we're moving into ceremonial season so we're very thankful that we got many prayers many blessings uh many ceremony and feasts to have together within our community to to embark on that healing so yeah Can can you tell me about ceremonial season i've not i've not heard that before Oh, yeah. Wonderful. So we're, we're in June. So we're the month of June. We've got a lot of our indigenous, our traditional ceremonies are happening. Um, you know, when that snow is gone, specifically here where we are in Amiskwisi, Waskaigan or Edmonton, um, you know, one winter we could have six feet of snow and the next winter we could have six inches of snow on the ground. Uh, but what we tend to try to gravitate towards is that ceremony, uh, medicine picking, all of these kind of sort of gatherings happening during the summer and 
traditionally as our people, we would travel these lands, you know, if we had full access and we weren't relegated to small parts of land that our government has designated to our indigenous peoples, we would otherwise be traveling with the seasons, uh, thus being a ceremonial season in which many lodges, uh, you know, I'm not going to name the number of ceremonies there are, uh, but they tend to happen more so when summer happens. And, you know, part of what's happening this summer as well, uh, now that we're seeing a little bit of um, safety and a little bit of uh, progress, let's say, with the pandemic. Uh, we're able to get out there a little bit more, a little bit more in person. You'll see that we've had some events uh, happening this month, uh, albeit small thus far, mm-hmm. uh, in which we are honoring this month. And we're holding that space for our Indigenous community to come forward, to, to be able to sit uh, together. Uh, we did hold a ceremony in Round Dance at Beaver Hills Park the other day on June 21st. We uh, made several announcements, but we brought our community together, uh, again, in a very small circle in a safe way so that we could uh, dance together in, in a safely distance round dance. But otherwise, there are other ceremonies that are happening now, and they, they tend to happen between now and, and, and July into July and August, mm-hmm. and they're happening on a weekly, daily, almost basis. So, yeah. Jeffrey, for people that, that may lack a, a, an understanding about what two-spirit implies or is is it as simple as and i suspect it may not be i don't know but is it, is it as simple as saying that is an indigenous lgbtq person or is it more than that it can be definitely more than that so depending on each and all of the individuals so let's let's consider ryan there are so many different indigenous traditions and cultures all across turtle island otherwise known as canada uh, so if we're looking at north america from mexico up or even even into mexico um Two-spirit people is a, is a westernized term. It was a term that came in dream to Myra Laramie some, some years ago, around 1990. And that was adopted at a two-spirit gathering um, in, in Winnipeg in 1990. And that, that, vision that dream was brought forward and it was adopted as two-spirit to to be encompassed within western languages so people can understand the vast um the 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 breadth of of the identity of being um that ceremonial that sacred person amongst indigenous peoples who were sexually and or gender diverse and were able to be in between people navigate conversations navigate camps uh roles and things like that Two-spirit people, we we transcend those boundaries set by the binary of female and male. Uh, We thereby restore that gender fluidity, that balance, that equality amongst our people and not uh, moving towards a matriarchal or patriarchal system of of dominance and power. Um, As two-spirit people, we're revered and we're once again finding our space and our place in in this society. We all know the history and the law here in Canada. We know that, you know, Trudeau made uh, gay rights, gay marriage possible. the former Trudeau, and we see a lot of these these equality, these moves towards equality coming forward for us in time. So, yeah. What's the Jeffrey? What's what's the history? And again, when I say and, and you and many others on this show have have uh, kindly and importantly pointed out that you can't say indigenous culture or indigenous language or indigenous cuisine uh, in some sort of overarching or sweeping manner because there are so many different traditions, so many different languages, etc. So so acknowledging that, allow me now to be yeah. guilty of exactly that by, as, by asking you when it, when it comes to indigenous history, at least the history as you understand it or in your experience, how have two-spirited people 
typically been been treated or welcomed or greeted or even persecuted when it comes to that culture has indigenous culture would you say has it been more welcoming or more open or have there been has there been a similar plight and similar challenges as there has been in in so-called mainstream society well you know what ryan let's let's have some real talk here then right right that's what we're here for so you know let's not beat around it when um european contact happened when those religions started to approach these lands of turtle island or north america um those those practices within those religions who who We all understand that the view around some religions around homosexuality or sexual and gender diversity and and not very kind uh, for our people, not very fair, not very just and so on and so forth. So when that contact happened here in in North America or Turtle Island, those were the first ceremonies, the first traditions um, to be sort of pushed into hiding into darkness. One, uh, our indigenous peoples didn't want to be subjected to what perhaps the, the, the forces, the Canadian forces the colonizers practices were at that time and the churches are rolling in and they're telling you no you cannot be gay you will go to hell you will and 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 you're a sinner and all of those things were happening so there were often some of the first um, ceremonial aspects of our ways of being as um, equeo or two-spirit people uh, were pushed further. And then a lot of those indigenous practices and ceremonies, sweat lodges, round dance, pipe ceremonies, those were also considered to be barbaric. And those were pushed into hiding and darkness and illegal to practice. And, and we all know some of that other history where indigenous peoples, we were locked. We were locked on these small parcels of land that were given by the government. You needed an Indian agent to be able to give you a permission slip as if you were leaving the classroom at school to go to the washroom. So in time, we're starting to see some of those um, practices come back. Um, so with our two-spirit people, a lot of our traditional healing practices, a lot of our own ceremony as Ikweo, Ikweo being Cree or Nihia for um, two-spirit. Uh, so a lot of those ceremonies practices those teachings are now coming forth and story and oral traditions are coming forth now why what do you think it is like what what is what it when it comes to the different perspective on on two-spiritedness or two-spirited people when it when it comes to how that was rooted in tradition have you been able to, to nail down for yourself why you think that is why there was such a different perspective as as opposed to what came with colonizers or what came with more organized let me call it western european religion yeah so you know i wasn't here at that time (laughs) i'm here in this present space um so you know i bring my own sort of views of where religion lies at right um so the you know, there, there is to say there are a lot of good qualities. There's a lot of uh, bits and pieces of the, sort of the good content of each and every tradition, story. You know, we take away those those, those things that hold meaning to us. And, and that, that's the way it holds with most religions, most um, ideologies, beliefs, so on and so forth. And no two people um, walk that journey. That, that journey, that thought process, that understanding of our religions, our ways of being, um, present and a part of this world each and every person has a different view scope and perspective on that um i myself i see i see a lot of elements uh, that come with sort of western western um 
ways and practices. You know, we now walk in in both worlds. As a two-spirit person, I walk in many worlds of, of, um, you know, with non-Indigenous, Indigenous, with two-spirit, non-two-spirit, with religious people, with non-religious people. And, and, you know, we all just exist together. That love, that love that we must all have and that acceptance of who we are and respecting that person to walk their journey in any way that they want, just as much as I would want that person to respect my journey in any way that I walk it, I will respect theirs, right? That's what we should do as people. Um, that That's what we're meant to do is just respect each other, have that love um, and, and not be so critical. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't even want to go back to the laws of the land that made these things illegal for our people and, and, and made uh, shame and guilt based on our identity, on, on our core beings of who we are. Um, in our traditional ways as Indigenous people, they're, they're perhaps was not that shame attached, you know, to spirit or, or, or to us LGBTQIA or sexually or gender diverse Indigenous people, yes, can be sort of in a broad sense seen as two-spirit people in the Western sense of how we say two-spirit um, hold those roles in our society. So, yeah, thank you, Ryan. Yeah, well, I just, and, and this isn't so much a question, uh, Jeffrey, as it is just an, just a sort of an anecdotal comment. As I, I remember yeah. I had a, an opportunity to speak with a, uh, just one of the most remarkable uh, people that I've ever met, uh, an indigenous physician. He he was uh, you know one of, one of the big winners of, of the amazing race, and had an opportunity to, to chat with him for for and and, and uh, off air. And uh, his insight for me, the the insight that he provided to me on on the history of two spirited people and how it was always a proud history and accepted history. It it just see it struck me in a way, and that's not to take away. I'm sure that. Many people obviously struggled and many people faced many challenges. And, and I'm not saying that every single person had it easy. That's for sure. Attention. But he but he painted kind of a picture for me that helped me understand that that culturally uh, that there was it, it was much more of an encouraging history than it may have been uh, when it came to, for example, how gay or lesbian or trans people may have been treated, for example, growing up in the Catholic church or growing up in, in, in so-called white society. It was, a, it was an enlightening moment for me because I had absolutely no idea about that. And, uh, and I've been yeah. walking with it since it was interesting insight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, James McCocus, Dr. Yeah. James, who you're referring to is absolutely um, uh, just remarkable knowledge. When I, yeah. Remarkable. Yeah. You cannot uh, yeah, get into the depth. Um, I, I'm just, I'm eager to be holding ceremony or, or attending ceremony at James and Anthony's coming up this mm. season. Um, but yeah, the, the, the thinking about it in that concept, right? We, we look at some of those photos we see of residential schools. We see our children uh, gendered and, and separated within those classroom settings. Um, and we see how um, those religions, those, those ideologies, those beliefs believe or, or what those beliefs are around diversity or difference or outside what is that um, more predominant um, ways of being, let's say, uh, of heterosexual normativity or or, or uh, non-queer um, and, and we see how in our traditional cultures where we were respected and revered we held those honored roles we're often in circle uh, making decisions and providing advice and healing and support amongst the leadership within our our nations our tribe so to speak um, in traditional times so we are seeing that um, come about now 
So, you know, as, as our movement and our presence and our ability to hold space and the number of people such as yourself, such as those in, in government, Randy Boisnow, who's running for MP City Centre, has been a strong supporter, has held that circle. And, and, and many are stepping forward, like Janice Irwin and others who are in positions uh, within our government to say, how do we hold space for you? Not just a checkbox, but um, how is that natural space held for our Indigenous peoples? And, and we're starting to see that more and with that we're starting to see the strength of our people we're starting to see within even our own indigenous nations if we look at the different um, uh, reserves throughout our area we are seeing more people get uh, more knowledge more awareness of who we are as two-spirit people Uh, and at E2S or at Edmonton Two-Spirit Society we're really thankful that we just completed a series called Two-Spirit Knowing on our YouTube it's a wonderful wonderful series Uh, and it, it was just delivered about a month ago and on that series it really talks about the Cree perspectives of two-spirit knowing uh, and it shares a little bit about E2S and some of the leadership and some of the things we do and just by having that presence in space of course in our social digital virtual world of the last year um, people are seeing that and when they see that and they see the people discussing these things around our two-spiritedness around our giftedness they're much more inclined to come out and say hey uh, and we have parents. We have parents that are reaching out and their children are as young as 12, 8, 14, 17 and older. Right. Uh, we have a lot of lot of folks across different uh, lifespans who are reaching out to say, what is going on there? And they're joining us in circle about the last year in virtual circles. But, you know, on the 21st, many joined us in round dance. Coming up on the 26th, many are joining us at the Alberta Legislature. Uh, we're going to be enjoying the Indigia House of Beaver Hills, which are two-spirit drag performers, kings and queens, coming together on the 26th at 7 o'clock at the Alberta Ledge. Uh, and they're going to perform for us. They're going to share. Uh, we're all going to celebrate together uh, and raise some funds for Edmonton Two-Spirit Society's new office that we're going to be opening soon. Oh, congratulations. I love it. I yeah. love it. You're, uh, you just don't get excited about anything. Hey, Jeffrey, <laughs> no, no passion whatsoever. I love it. I, I feel like I could talk to you for three hours. Uh, people can check out E2S.ca. That's the number two E2S.ca to learn more, to contribute, to, uh, to, to get the, the down low on uh, the events that are upcoming as well. E2S.ca. Jeffrey Shalov, who's joining us uh, with the Edmonton Two-Spirit Society. Happy Pride. Thank you for this. Greatly appreciate the conversation. Wonderful. Thank you, Ryan. Take care. Yeah, you bet. Great conversation there. And uh, we endeavor to learn something uh, every time we welcome a guest to the show. And I think we've just accomplished that there. Very much appreciate Jeffrey's availability. Before we start talking about municipal finances, we're going to get into politics and budget, but I promise your eyes won't gloss over because we have a great panel that's going to give us some insight into some of the politicking that happens between the different levels of government that we may not understand. Let me remind you, when it comes to dollars and cents, when it comes to money, that may be the main reason why you've not yet pursued your sustainable energy goal, right? When it comes to your house, when it comes to your business, let's be honest, you've thought about solar, But you've been led to believe that the cost is exorbitant, prohibitive even. Well, the team at Kubi Energy wants to remind you that Edmonton homeowners right now are eligible for two different grants totaling a maximum of $9,000 in subsidies. 
And then that $5,000 federal grant, the Greener Homes Grant, obviously nationwide, doesn't matter where you're listening to this show from or where you're watching from, Kubi Energy with offices in Kamloops, in Edmonton, able to do projects across Western Canada. Also want to remind you that they're always looking for passionate, qualified individuals for their design and engineering teams, as well as their installing teams. The installation teams, of course, featuring certified electricians and electrical apprentices. You can learn more at kubienergy.ca. The team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, proud to have the best selection, literally, when it comes to Jeep and Ram trucks across the province of Alberta. They've known that for years. They've been proving it with their sales, but it's a unique time right now. As a matter of fact, Stocks are low. You know, you're going to some car dealerships. They've got literally 50 vehicles on the lot. They might usually have 300. Well, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge are able to share their inventories. That's better for you, the customer. You can find them online. Just follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. The teams at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you if you're feeling like hitting that grill, but you don't want to do the work this weekend, why not visit a DQ drive-thru in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, or Baseline. Road. Two single cheeseburgers are five bucks. Two double cheeseburgers are seven bucks. These are the ones with 100% all beef patties topped with processed cheddar cheese pickles, ketchup, and mustard served on a warm toasted bun. Not bad. Not bad. But even better, the deals at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton <laughs> and Sherwood Park. I, I sort of like, I, I, I sort of that one kind of snuck up on you. Sam's like busy getting the next guest ready. Sarah's doing the no. production. And I'm, and I'm trying to make eye contact with you both. Are you guys ready to talk about warm toasted buns or what? I, I love warm toasted buns. I love warm I toasted love buns. It's my favorite thing that. about going to the beach. What? And finally, the team at Alta Moving and Storage knows that this is the time of year where everybody's going to make that move, right? Who wants to move in January? The answer is nobody. But the team at Alta Moving and Storage, you can check them out online at altastorage.ca. As you can see, Edmonton's number one portable storage and moving service. They're family owned and operating, so they get it. Moving's lousy. Moving's stressful. Nobody enjoys moving. But with these pod style moving containers, the game is changing. They drop them off. You fill them up at your convenience. They can hold them in storage for you or take them right to the new place and you unload them. Yeah, exactly. Based on your schedule. Take the stress out of moving and for storage solutions, visit altastorage.ca. Make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent you at Alta Moving in Storage. Well, this is kind of the stuff that it it, it doesn't really sort of come across as exciting, does it? Whether it's your personal life or whether it's politics, municipal, provincial or federal governments, when people start talking about budgets and expenditures, people start to, well, their minds drift off. They start to think about camping or water skiing. They start to think about fishing. But this stuff's important. Why? Because the level of understanding that we need, of course, will inform how we feel about decisions that politicians are making. Did you know, for example, that your municipal governments, your councillors, your mayors, your Reeves are held to a different standard when it comes to their bottom line, when it comes to their books? This as compared to provincial and federal governments, which, of course, can run big deficits and rack up big debts. We're proud here at Real Talk to partner up with the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, otherwise known as the AUMA, on a monthly basis to help you and us better understand some of the decisions that are being made, why they're being made, and why they 
matter. It's a real pleasure to welcome to the program this morning the president of the AUMA. He's also the mayor of the city of Brooks. His worship, Mayor Barry Morishita, a counselor in the town of Okotoks, Councillor Tanya Thorne, and the mayor of the village of Hythe, Mayor Brian Peterson. To the three of you, welcome to the show today. Happy Friday. We're grateful to have you here. Uh, mayor, when it comes to Mayor Morishita, when it comes to talking about municipal budgets, municipal expenditures, it's a different ball game, isn't it? Almost entirely than different levels of government. Yeah, Ryan, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. First, first of all, let's, you know, let's lay down a couple of kind of basics. First of all, about a third of your tax bill that you get uh, is, is levied by the province or the education tax. And we don't even have any control of that. So one third of it is out of our control already. And that, that typically goes up. It's scheduled to go up about 3% a year. And we don't have any control of that. Next, uh, we do our budgets in public. So they're debated in public, they're talked about in public. Uh, we make those decisions in public, our, our individual spending decisions, what we approve for projects, all done in public and uh, debated in front of uh, the public if they wanna be uh, watching. The other thing is, is that we've got about 55% of the public infrastructure in Alberta to look after, and we get about 10 cents of every tax dollar. Uh, to do that. And, um, you know, we, we collect about $17 billion a year in Alberta, the Alberta municipalities through fees and taxation. And that compares to a roughly $55 billion budget that the Alberta government runs. So that gives you a sense of where municipalities are relative to the province. And then last but not least, um, you know, it's uh, really unrealistic for uh us to compare our two processes when we're bound by rules that the province imposes. So you're right, absolutely what you said at the top. We cannot run deficits. So when costs go up, whether it's wages or the cost of goods inflation, we have to deal with that somehow. Uh, we're also charged with certain uh, municipal responsibilities, which we all appreciate. You know, we have to provide water. We have to reply protective services. We have to do all those things in the context of the budgeting, in the context of a balance. So it's significantly different, but you know, we have great municipal officials that uh, that do this every every uh, every year, once a year, make adjustments as we go. And plus we're at the whim of provincial and federal government's grants uh, uh, every year. So it's not the easiest job. Mayor Peterson, this is uh, an interesting time to be speaking with you. Uh, for people that may not be aware, correct me if I'm wrong, Hythe will, cease to be a village uh, a week yesterday in six days from now. Is this is this to do with tax base? Is this the reason? Why why is this the case and what are the implications? Well, that's correct. Yeah. July 1st is our uh, will be the county will take over. Um, and it's definitely a financial problem. That's the only reason for the disillusion, uh, you know, and, and it's tax based. Um, some can say that it's because the tax base is too small, but I say also it's because the tax base here is is forced to pay for facilities that service the surrounding areas. So I'll give you an example, a school, you know, we still have to plow the snow, supply the sewer, et cetera. Uh, we get no tax money for that. And 85% of the people that attend the school are not from the village the small number of people in the village are paying for that as well as many other facilities. So it's just an idea that 
it's not just tax base related. It's how fair the taxes are distrib- distributed. Do you have do you have mixed feelings about so what happens? It goes from a, a village. It's 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 almost uh, like absorbed by the county. Is that what happens? How, how does this work exactly? And, and what does this mean for people that are living there or living nearby? So it, they're absorbed by the county and uh, basically the village turns into a hamlet that's controlled by the county and directed by the county. We uh, even as far as voting, we no longer will have a council or a mayor. Um, the only thing we can do in the future is vote for the county representative in our ward. Is that a how do you, how do you feel about that? Well, I think that uh, first of all, I think that the, the village has made the right decision. Mm. I think the process that the government puts us through is ineffective, and the options we're given in this situation are uh, not adequate. Councillor Thorne, you're uh, after uh, a couple of terms, right? As as a councillor, two term councillor of the town of Okotoks, first elected in 2013, you're running for mayor uh, coming up in October. Uh, congratulations in advance. Obviously, a huge step to to be, to be seeking that chair. How different are the conversations now? How different? Does the platform look? Uh, how different is this run going to be for you, considering the fiscal landscape? What's changed this time around as to the previous two elections in which you ran? Um, I'm not sure if anything necessarily has changed. I, absolutely, the fiscal landscape is getting um, tighter, more complicated. But it's still, at the end of the day, for me, comes down to value for money. So uh, we talk a lot about, you know, it's easy to compare dollar to dollar, right? Oh, I pay too much. But when you really break down your municipal taxes into that value for money conversation, and I'll just talk specifically Okotoks, but this is across all municipalities. When I take a look at what I pay for myself personally and my community, I'm paying about $199 a month for municipal services. And so for me, I always ask questions, is not is that too much, is are you getting good value for that? So that conversation doesn't change whether I was a councillor or or going to be the next mayor. It still is, is that good value for living in the town of Okotoks? And for me, $199 a month, that's lower, just so we know, than my internet, TV and phone bill a month. I pay less for municipal services where I'm getting 198 kilometers of road. I've got a library. I've got six six recreation culture facilities. I've got 95 kilometers of pathway. I've got 64 playgrounds, 275, no, 172 sectors of, or hectares of public park, a skate park, a splash park. Is that good value? That's the question that I ask my residents all the time. And, and that's, I think, where we really need to change the conversation is really talking about the value that's being delivered to you. 24 seven police services for $199 a month. I have a 24 seven coverage for fire police, um, you know, and, and 18 hours of municipal enforcement time. I couldn't pay for that um, myself just to have coverage there. So I think that's really the conversation around municipal services is, getting a real understanding of exactly what you're paying for. Cause I don't think residents truly understand 
what municipalities deliver to them on a daily basis. Policing is an interesting one for you to invoke, Counselor, because there's been a lot of talk about how policing is paid for across the province. I guess I want to put this in front of all three of you. Uh, we've, we've received, I, I read an email just a couple of days ago from somebody that was an interesting perspective saying, you know, they, they had felt that with policing costs downloaded onto smaller communities, this this viewer actually said they thought it was more equitable. They actually were comparing it in an example to almost a more localized form of equalization, uh, saying that the resources needed to go to where they were needed most and it made sense the way that it was being paid for. This has been a big change, though, hasn't it, with this provincial government? Mayor Morshida, you want to take this one on first? Yeah, you know, uh, for sure. And, and the policing, extra policing costs uh, certainly does bring an equity to it. And, and there is some consideration there. But it does speak to an overall concept of how the province downloads. And they do it several different ways. So they take uh, things that they current they used to pay for and they just quit paying for them or lower them. Don't pay, don't pay as much. And so municipalities are left to catch up with that. Um, and the other way they do it is they take revenues away. They take the opportunity revenues away. For instance, Brian was talking about how schools in your community, uh, schools, hospitals, seniors are not taxable because they're provincially owned assets. Well, they used to give us what they call just a grant to cover the taxation. Uh, so that way, you know, the snow plowing and the policing, all the things that everybody else pays for, the province paid their share. Well, they took all that away. So we have, so basically what happens then is that when you saw your taxes go up a bit uh, over that period of time, you're subsidizing the provincial government property services that they get. And so that's, that's, that's a real problem. And one of the real problems out of that is they don't talk to us about what the best way to do that is. They don't come to us before budget. They always claim, you know, budget secrecy and budget whatever. I don't know what the rules are. We're not bound by that rule. We get to talk about it, but the province can't. So they never have a conversation about this. Hey, by the way, we're going to cut your grants by 30%. Um, in the case, for instance, of MSI, which is all kinds of different acronyms, but basically it's a transfer that the province is giving to municipalities. When it when the new one starts in uh, 2023, it's going to be 36% less, Ryan, 36% cut to the capital grant that comes to municipalities. And uh, no one uh, no one else in Alberta has taken a 36% cut. And now we're required to still provide all these services. And then we're told, don't raise your property tax. Yeah. So what are the so, implications there, Mayor? Like 36%, you know, let's call it $1 out of every three. Uh, what does that mean for the average resident? Well, that means there's two things. Uh, Tanya was talking about value for money. So either we say, hey, by the way, we got to keep the maintenance going. That means someone's got to come up with that extra dollar across the whole province, which we only have the property tax to get it from, or we ignore it and we end up uh, in situations that could put us in a bad position in the future, whether we're not maintaining or whether even, uh, you know, in, in the case of height where you live off kind of the equity of your community until you don't have any equity left and because no one wants to pay more taxes. So, you know, it's, it's not a fair way to do it. There's a way to distribute this so that there's fairness in the system. And right now it, it really isn't there. And, and just to supplement that a little bit, Ryan, is I think the, primary difference, I think, between the municipal governments and provincial and federal governments is municipally, we tend to have a philosophy of um, user pay. And so what that means from a grants perspective of 
we try and put money away into savings and have our current users today paying for the services that they're using instead of deferring and saying, you know what, we're not going to save for the replacement of the water pipeline we're going to have to do in 25 years based on our asset management plans. Um, we're not going to save for that. We're going to wait till that next generation comes and we're going to make them pay for all of it, even though it's our current residents that are using that service right now today. So that's philosophically a difference with municipal government is that we we want to distribute those costs across everybody that uses them with each year right and and make sure that everybody's um paying into that service so what is this i mean when it comes down to let me let me put this in the uh, i love this from james who's watching and and i'd be curious for your assessment of whether or not this is is accurate mayor peterson maybe we'll come to you first on this james says well the province rigs municipal taxation to ensure that you direct your outrage toward municipalities instead of the province. Is it that yeah. simple? Is that what it is? It certainly is. He's definitely hit one of the nails there. Um, you know, it's tax, the way taxes are done now and what's downloaded onto municipalities, we have, for small municipalities especially, and I'm really concerned about this province-wide, is that pro- municipalities for years have not been able to put the money into the infrastructure that's required. And as Barry said, we lived off our equity and uh, a lot of us are running out of that equity. And it's because we just don't have enough money. We have to run a balanced budget. We can't take on a lot of debt, which those things I agree with and I'm glad we have it. But uh, the support from the government and it's very easy to download on us and have us blamed rather than themselves. So what is all ultimately? Yeah, let me ask you, Barry, and I'll just let you take it from here then. So so what does this all mean then? I mean, where does this conversation need to go? Well, well, there's two things, Ryan. Just go back to the kind of what James was saying about the rage about taxes. So when you know you think about how you get your property taxes. So you pay income taxes. So, you know, it comes off your check for the most part. If you're an employee, you never really see it. Uh, At the end of the year, you reconcile it and you might owe a couple hundred bucks. You might get a couple thousand back. You're actually happy about your tax situation. What we do is, um, you know, once a year, we send you a bill for, you know, $3,000, whatever it might be. uh, And you go, holy, what do I, $3,000, why am I paying so much? So when you get, anybody gets a $3,000 bill, they remember it. If, it would be interesting uh, how they would feel if uh, the, the average person got a, because you get a $15,000 bill from the provincial government for your taxes. We don't get it that way. It just kind of disappears off your check or you pay it monthly or whatever. You don't see it. So, you know, in that regard, we always have to deal with that once a year at this this period of time. And then when you're, your question about where this leads is that, you know, there, there is no advantage for um, an, an, a level of government above us who makes all the rules to criticize what we have to do. At the end of the day, we're providing a lot of services for very little money. And um, the, way, the way things are going now, we're putting a lot of municipalities in jeopardy of not being sustainable in the future. And these are service centers. These are places where people live, where they go to school, where they've built their lives. And now either they're gonna pay a lot more because there's not equity in the system, or they're going to dissolve, uh, like Brian said, uh, like Kaif is doing, and have to come up with a better model. Now, 
there should be pathways to that. They should be easier than the one Brian's community had to go down uh, to make sure that they are sustainable. But again, uh, the AUMA has, has offered a lot of uh, opportunities for provincial government current and in the past to be involved in a better conversation about finances, about sustainability. And quite honestly, we're just not at the table. And that's really uh, where I think a lot of the unintended consequences come and some of the, quite frankly, the extra expenses that result as uh, not having that conversation. Crazy James watching in says, you know what? He says, I bet you we're going to see many smaller communities hand over the keys uh, over the next few years. We saw a similar situation a couple of years ago with Grand Cash. Um, d- d- Tanya, uh, Councillor Thorne, do you, is, is this a, is this a way, or maybe, I mean, maybe I should ask Mayor Peterson, let me ask all of you, but Tanya, we'll start with you. I mean, is, is this a way of, <laughs> I'm going to put it too candidly. I was going to say, of, uh, let, let me put it professionally. Is this a way of putting the ball back in the court of the province? Is this, is, is, is handing over the keys. It's obviously a big decision with implications. I'm sure that are not all favorable, uh, but what leverage do municipalities have in this conversation? It sounds to me like not much. And I don't think we do, you know, like it's, it's easy to say the handing over the keys, but you're really not, you know, in, and Brian can talk to this a little bit more, but you're not handing the keys back to the province. You're handing it over to another municipality. So they're handing their keys over to the County. Right. Um, you know, and, and typically that's what we've been seeing in this province is, is our smaller communities, our villages, they're handing the keys over to a County, but we haven't had a conversation about what happens when a County decides it's going to hand its keys over. Where are they them to? Cause that that's a reality as well out there is there's some counties that are fiscally challenged. And, and I think every municipality is fiscally challenged, you know, and we talk about, um, again, you know, good management, but FCM, the Federated Canadian Municipalities Association, so the national body of AUMA kind of thing, you know, they did some research a while back. There's a $30 billion deficit in infrastructure, municipal infrastructure across, you know, the province here. Uh, and and in terms of debt, even municipalities, we have a debt service limit. So we can only go so high. It's legislated. It's required. You can only go so high based on each individual municipality. But our municipalities don't access debt. We, we use debt very little. Like 25% of us are below, or the majority, two-thirds of our municipalities in this province are below 25% of the debt limit. So we don't access debt. We use very little debt, really, to manage everything we're managing. Um, you know, so what happened? And again, because of that balanced budget requirement, we have to manage those debt servicing costs in that balanced budget. We don't get to put it somewhere else. It's another line item we have to deal with. So, yeah, that that's, I think... You know, the province is putting all this pressure on, but we're really not turning the keys over to the province. We're turning the keys over to each other. Yeah. So, Mayor, so Mayor Peterson, and, and I'm grateful that Councillor Thorne clarified there, this isn't exactly your way of, of telling the premier or cabinet provincially, uh, you this is your problem. Now you deal with it. That's that's not the case. Definitely not the case. So, you know, our keys will be turned over to the county. The county has no choice in the matter. Yeah. You know, so. If they're a bit hostile in the process, I, I can't totally blame them. Is that the case? No. Are people pissed uh, off? I believe so, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, and I, I don't even blame them. Um, you know, I, but I'm, 
wanted to look at a bigger picture. And one of the, your viewers, I think, said that he's concerned about more small towns doing this or having to do this because we don't do it by choice. We do it because we have to. Um, Heith is in northwestern Alberta. North Alberta has been the economic driver of Canada for 40-plus years. Certainly one of them, anyway. Um, Northwestern Alberta has continually been an economic driver of Alberta. Yet, we cannot afford to fix our pavement. There's something wrong with that. And I'll tell you one of the things that is not wrong with it. It has not been poor management that has caused this. In fact, the previous management, I look at and say, I'm amazed we got done what we did with what money we have. So the solution to tax people is limited. And by that, everyone has an ability to pay a certain amount. If we, so if we were to put in the proper taxes we need, need right now, our mill rate would be 22.5. A failure starts at 13. So we could, we, could ra- we could raise the taxes to that level, but we would be unsuccessful. So that's the situation we're in. And I believe there's many, many more towns that are in this situation. We were also number seven in line for disillusion. So it gives you an idea. It's a big problem. So, I mean, what does this ultimately mean? I mean, probably the short answer might be higher property taxes, but I suspect that that's probably just too simple. That's probably oversimplifying it, right? I mean, do, do we need to talk about things like infrastructure Deficits? Do we need to start talking about what roads and water lines and rec centers and and other infrastructure might start looking like if if this cash crunch continues, Barry, Mayor Morshida? Well, I I think we do. You know, if you look at the last few years uh, between pandemic and the economic uncertainty that's faced Alberta, you know, municipalities haven't ignored that. So, you know, they've tightened their belts. They've they've improved their budget processes. In fact, you know, for the most part, if you look across a majority of members, they've had very small increases or no increases, and in some cases have actually lowered lowered taxes. They're actually spending, in some cases, less money. So, you know, what has to happen here is the reality is, is that everyone who lives in Heath and Okotoks and Brooks and Edmonton live in Alberta, and we all need to figure out a better way to do all this stuff. Um, you know, we... We, uh, we, we make grants competitive so that small communities that don't have the administrative resources can't make the applications. Um, we have, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, uh, I, in my mind, we, we don't equitably distribute the revenues that come from industry across this province very fairly. Um, and, and we... As a result, we have some haves and haves nots in this province, quite frankly, when it comes to 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 revenues and and those things um, need to be addressed in the future if we're all going to have communities that we can we can live in. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but but not only uh, inequitable distribution of resource revenue, but uh, unless I'm misunderstanding what's been going on, hasn't hasn't the provincial government actually stepped in and forgiven 
some outstanding municipal property taxes owed by corporate citizens to municipalities. In other words, the provinces come in and forgiven taxes owed in particular by oil and gas companies to municipalities when it's not really, quite frankly, as far as I can tell, none of their business or my misunderstanding. Yeah, I don't think they've I don't think they've forgiven them, Ryan, but they've basically stood on the sideline while municipalities don't have the ability to collect it. Right. So in in essence, by inaction, they've done exactly what you said. You know, those municipalities are owed a lot of money. Uh, and as a result, those services suffer or the relationships with their neighbors suffer because they can't pay for those obligations. So I don't know that they've actually forgiven them, although the deal going forward, I know there's a lot of forgiveness in property taxes. And you'll notice it's property taxes. Mm-hmm. They've, they've, they've asked municipalities to forego property taxes um, while the province is not foregoing it. And, and again, uh, the relationship has to work together. You know, and a really good example is recently when cannabis became legal, there is an excise tax on cannabis, right? Um, every, every, every province got in on the action. They got a, a portion of the taxes. Um, to the credit, the government at, at Ottawa at, increased the excise tax and asked the provinces to share it. Well, guess what our province did? Hmm. They didn't share a penny. In fact, right now, if you want to think about it in real simple terms with taxation, people that are uh, currently in communities that have cannabis facilities in them are actually subsidizing that facility directly through taxation because the province will not share the revenue from them. And what, that's not right. What, 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 how would you describe the three of you, the dynamic between municipalities and the province? Like, it sounds to me like it's not, Great. It sounds to me like there's not exactly let's meet in the middle and determine what's best for Albertans. It doesn't exactly sound like that. And Ryan, I'll jump in on that one. Um, It's not right. And I don't think it's because municipalities don't want a partnership. We talk about that all the time. Let's sit down and talk. Barry referenced it earlier. Let's talk about how we deliver these services across the province. Because at the end of the day, we are all Albertans. So what is the best way for us to use that tax dollar? You know, there is only one taxpayer and municipalities are very aware of that fact. Um, So how do we more effectively use those dollars across the whole of us um, and, and look at that, you know, in, in AMA, we've been advocating on the LGFF, the local government fiscal framework, which is the replacement for MSI. We've been advocating that for, I don't know, the last four years, five years, maybe, which is to provide a framework to put some predictable funding in place. So the provincial government, as an example, requires us to put you know, three-year operating budgets and five-year capital plans. We have to plan for that. But they can't tell us how much money they're going to give us from year to year. How do you plan a capital plan if you don't have any idea what your grant is going to be from the, the province or if that grant changes from year to year? We were supposed to have it defined. The program was supposed to go into place for 2022 next year. This last budget, they delayed it now until 2024, and they've cut the starting number by 36%, even though they're saying that it's predictable. Well, that's not predictable. It changes from budget to budget. And back to that, um, you know, we do our budget deliberations in public. 
we as municipalities, our public know what's going to be happening because we've been debating it and discussing it for usually three, four months prior to us actually finalizing a budget. We as municipalities and as residents of Alberta, we sit with bated breath on provincial budget day, waiting to find out what's going to happen to us because we have no idea even what they're considering versus, you know, the only thing we know is the Twitter feed, which we all know how realistic and and reliable that can be on a day-to-day basis. But that's the only thing we know of what's being discussed in the budget. There's there's no transparency with it. Well, how how different is this than the way that it's been? I mean, as since you know, I mean, Premier Ed Stelmack uh, brings in MSI a number of years ago. I mean, there's always been this dynamic. Uh, I'll ask all three of you, Mayor Peterson. Why don't we start with you? I mean, is is this is this a, a dramatically different approach under this premier than in previous you know previous uh, governments? So I looked at the situation we're in at Heist and bring it to the public and then what we could see for the future. And the one thing I can tell you is that government revenues have continually decreased for us in the form of grants in lieu, which totally disappeared in our case to zero now. And um, other types of grants have continually, continually dropped. This is a long-term problem. What do you think, Mayor Morishita? Well, again, I I think... To your first point, you know, are we all getting along? No, because we're all defending territory. Yeah, um, and it's it's really difficult. You know, I I, I was I was fortunate enough to visit visit Heath a couple summers ago when when Mayor Peterson was kind of going through this, and and really an unnecessary process. That, that's a community of eight or nine hundred people that services a broad chunk of property across northern Alberta, and yet you know ha- had to be pushed to the brink of basically. Uh, uh, being completely broke before anyone really steps up to help and figure it out. And is that the way we're going to govern the rest of the municipalities into the next few years or the next uh, 10 years or 20 years? Shouldn't be. You know, AMA is taking on a a big project about the future of municipalities and finances obviously is a big part of that. But, you know, um, we we haven't got a lot of engagement, you know, quite fairly from our from our rural counterparts. We haven't got a lot of engagement there. And while the province is part of it, again, they don't come to the table to offer different solutions. Their solution is to cut us or to take revenues away and say, you guys figure it out. Um, and that's that's just not an acceptable thing. It's not gonna work. And, and you know, Hythe is small, but that is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, I've been in communities in the last three years that are significantly bigger uh, than Mayor Peterson's, uh, but they're faced with massive infrastructure deficits that when that comes home to roost, their tax base is going to be at the critical point too. They won't be able to afford to put wastewater services. They won't be able to put in that new water treatment plant. And uh, no, one's, no one's helping, no one's coming up with solutions other than keep your taxes low, you know, don't... Uh, don't don't save money. Do it like we do. You know, uh, we don't want to we don't want to ever possibly do it smart. Uh, and we have to change that because Alberta has the capability to do some amazing things. We just need to get in a room, figure it out. And that's probably the most frustrating thing for all of us. Um, you know, uh, with high situation, unnecessary situation. You know, if, if this would have been addressed properly, uh, even five, even as little as five years ago, we wouldn't be in this room talking about a dissolution. I don't think we'd be talking about a thriving community. 
um, which Hythe will remain hopefully under the guidance of the county and with people like Brian in charge, but um, it shouldn't come to that. And, and we shouldn't be pitting our tax rates uh, against the provinces. You know, we've cut taxes. So, and now you see municipalities raising them. Well, that's why. Yeah, because it feels Albertans, still be- need, Albertans still need that stuff. So they're just right. making us pay for it. it. Makes no sense. Go ahead, Brian. Brian. So not very often do I disagree with Barry, but I will disagree with him on one thing. He said that something about the government helping. In this situation, they have done nothing to help. They've done lots to obscure the, the uh, situation, and they've done lots to make it difficult to even make a transition. They have not been here to help. I could not call it help in any manner. Uh, I am so disappointed with the government. I'm so disappointed with that process that they put us through that is a, is a game. It's fake. It has no real benefit. Mayor, why do you think that is? Why? Yeah. Because they're, what are they doing to help us? Uh, nothing. They're turning us over to the county, which the county had no choice in and no say. So, I mean, how for both of us, we have no say going and they don't have no say accepting us. And the government didn't come and look at us. They do a viability review. That viability review is not a review to see if we're viable. It is a, they call it that, but it is not that it is a preparation for a vote. And it's a poor preparation. That's all it is. What is it for disillusion? What has this done? uh, Would you say to your community? Like, does it does it does it affect the for lack of a better word? Does it affect the ego or the swagger of a community to to make a move like this? There's two two parts to the decision for myself and for everyone else. There's an emotional part and there is a logic part, you know, so logic. Look at it. We're broke. We have to raise the taxes 150 additional percentage. Jeez. It's not reasonable. It's not, we cannot sustain ourselves with that. So that's easy. The emotional part is giving up on feeling like you're giving up on community. And for every person, that's what they've had to go through um, and are still going through it to some, at some point, you know. Councillor Thorne, I don't want to. Uh, it's inherently negative to call something a sell job. So I mean no offense, but in, in a positive interpretation, you had a pretty good sell job where you said, hey, listen, 199 bucks a month. You said that's less than what I'm paying for TV, Internet. And and, um, you know, you'd pay even less for Internet if you went with Park Power. But I, I digress. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but let me say so. You, but you make a good point. Right. You say, hey, listen, you say I can have police coverage. I can have fire coverage for, for 199 bucks a month. The roads are getting plowed. And, and, and I think a big part of what you're doing on a positive sense is the advocacy of helping people understand where the dollars are going and what they get, you know, bang for buck, et cetera. When we talk about user fees, it's been it's been interesting for me to be able to look through and see that the average urban municipality, uh, these are numbers from the AUMA. People can check out the website. The average urban municipality will fund its budget about 38 percent. This is on average, 38 percent with property taxes, 23 percent user fees. This is where my question is going. 27 percent from transfers, 12 percent from other sources. Do you see user fees going up? And as someone seeking election as the mayor of a community, can you run on increasing user fees? 
I think it's a balance. It, again, it comes back down to value for money um, for me in that, you know, how do you find the right, and, and, and it equates to the same thing Brian was talking about of, of what is the capacity to pay? So when it comes to user fees in my community, and I know I'm not, we're not um, unique in this, we all do it. We compare to 18 different municipalities in terms of where are they at, in terms of services they're offering, what are they charging for their, you know, recreation passes um, and arena rentals, all of those things. And we all try and stay in the right realm, um, you know, and with recreation is a perfect example. You can't charge enough user fees to cover that cost. So there is a portion of that that's covered through property taxes because it makes it cost prohibitive. And again, if you wanted, I, I tend to look at things very wholesomely. I want kids in playing sport and, and doing sport, one, just from the preventative health part of it. It gives them something to do. They're active. And I want my adults to be doing those same things. So, um, and those things also take off pressure on other areas of our, of our tax system. You know, the healthier your residents are, the less they're drawing into the provincial health system. And, and we don't focus enough on that. We, we look at the, um, you know, we, we're reactionary, you know, the, and this will get us into a different conversation, which I don't necessarily want to go to. But, you know, by investing on the front side of keeping people active and healthy, what does that save us on the backside? And, and this can be same thing on the policing budgets. By being proactive and, and investing in, in the front side of, you know, whether that's mental health, drug support, all of those things, investing there, what does that save on a police budget? And we don't have those conversations in this province wholesomely. And, and that is a problem. And municipalities, we have some really great insights into those elements because we're we're on the ground dealing with that on a day-to-day -day basis with our residents, you know, so we're, we're far more in touch with what's happening in each of our communities and potential solutions to make that better. Um, you know, but yeah, user fees are certainly an element, but again, just like property tax, there's only so high you can go before all of a sudden the facilities aren't being used because yeah. people can't afford to be use them. Right. So it's about that balance. Yeah. You know what I've, I've often thought, Tanya, I'm really glad. I mean, you bring up, for example, you didn't specifically say supervised consumption sites, but that's one example. I'd actually I'd actually you're going, oh, boy, here we go. No, but I but but you know what I'd really like to see? I would like to see all of the ethics and morality and it's the right thing to do and these are human beings and why can't we think of the human beings who i want to actually see all of that taken out of the conversation i want to see conversation on supervised consumption focus on the cost benefit because it seems to me like saving people's lives is not enough of an impetus to fund these types of things in our communities but i think if we explain to people how it cuts down on dispatching ambulances and fire trucks and tying up police officers and taking up hospital beds I actually think that you we might actually and it sounds like the most cold hearted thing to say, but from a but from an efficacy standpoint, I think that that would move the needle further. Some people are only interested in the conversations about dollars and cents. And and Ryan, you use safe consumption sites. Mine is mental health support. Sure. If we actually invested in mental health, what does that do across the spectrum? 
of everywhere. If our police officers could actually just be police officers instead of mental health advocates and social workers, what does that savings look like? Um, you know, and if our healthcare workers could could get um, people that come into emerge into the right channels that they could get those supports. So I, I think there's lots of things you could substitute into that, whether that's safe consumption heights, mental health, all of those things. But I think the big key one, when it, you talk about municipal finances, this impacts us federally, provincially and municipally. But let's engage the people that are dealing with this on the front line, whether that's municipal electeds and our municipal staff or, you know, our local police officers, they're dealing with this on the front line. And let's talk about real solutions. And you have to talk about a solution. We actually have to know what the outcome is we're driving for. And the outcome can't be always around the dollars and cents and, you know, driving the property tax down. Um, again, it comes back to value for money. Where do we get the best bang for each dollar we're spending? And we, we aren't having that conversation, in my opinion. Yeah. Connor's watching this morning. He says cutting taxes that end up still being costs for somebody isn't saving money. And he says it's time that this mindset is called out. He's, he goes on to say downloading costs by cutting taxes and services doesn't help anybody. We still pay in the end. And taxes weren't cut anyway for anybody but corporations. The average person is paying more and getting less. Uh, Barry, you you began, I mean, essentially one of your first comments was to note how the education portion mm -hmm. of property taxes work, about a third. Um, yeah. would, you, would you like to see, why does it make, uh, well, you're probably going to say it doesn't. What, what would be the argument for municipalities collecting education taxes and passing them along to the province? It seems like a bit of a one-way street there with regards to how those transfers are going, with regards to the reliability of the funding. How do you think education costs should be covered? Or let me say, how should the revenue be collected? Well, you know, now you're pushing me into areas that I, I should be careful how I speak here. But if you look historically at why we had education property tax, when there was local control of spending, that's how it worked, Right. You collected education property taxes, they went to your local school boards, and that's how you moved forward, right? So then when the <laughs> school boards got centralized and everything got taken away, then the province collected all that money, and now they do with it what they like. So yes, would I like to see it different? Absolutely, because I don't think it reflects a value at my local level, um, uh, and I don't think it really is a fair way to collect education taxes across the province. I'd love to see that changed. Um, and it's important to note, you know, in 2006, when the MSI came out, uh, the province was collecting $1.6 billion a year for education off the property taxes. It's now 2.4 and scheduled to go up to 2.6 over the next few years. Um, so that's a billion, $2.5 billion of fiscal capacity taken away from property owners to look after the community they, they, they live in. And the other thing that uh, I think is really important is that um, there is, seems to be a dynamic out there that uh, says that, you know, we have savings as communities. I have, I have, we call them reserves, but we're going to call them savings because it seems to make more sense to people to pay for costs that we're incurring, as Tanya said, you know, the depreciation of the assets, we can replace it and not shock anybody with the price someday. Um, there's a conversation going on uh, among, uh, particularly at the provincial level, that says that we're rich and that so we should just spend those now uh, in order so we don't raise taxes. 
Uh, and to some of your viewers' points, that's exactly what we don't want to do. We want to be able to afford to fix roads. We want to be able to put water pipes back in and pay for wastewater treatment. And again, that's one of those conversations that no one hears about except when a politician somewhere wants to use it for political scoring and says, you know, don't look at me. I don't raise your property taxes. Look at your municipal politician. He's doing that. Yeah. Well, no, he's not. He's planning to replace or he or she's planning to replace what's going to happen. And every time the province jiggles a little bit with their money, takes 30% of the fine revenue or takes away the grants in lieu or cuts even social service supports. Guess who comes to our door? The libraries do, the, the service agencies do. I can't run my program anymore. I don't have any subsidy for this. We get it all. And we either say goodbye to the service in our communities or we pay. So uh, it's just not fair. And um, I think municipalities around have to stand up and say, hey, uh, we do this and we do it publicly. The province doesn't. Um, and, and for small communities particularly, I think there's a responsibility for bigger communities to get together and support those places where people live. Hmm. We've got to put a better plan in place so that, uh, you know, you're not tearing apart communities in dissolution votes and studies and whatnot. We've got to just, there's a better way to do this stuff. Um, uh, and, and Alberta will be better if we can get on that page. Interesting. Go ahead, Tanya. Sorry, Brian. Um, just to add into that on that, you know, the education property tax, because it shows up in our bottom line bill, nobody looks at the itemized list. At least I don't think they do, even though we give it. So even if we come out and we were to hold the line on property tax, there's a 3% increase on education tax planned for the next four years. So even if I'm zero, I still have to explain to my residents why the property tax bill went up by that 3% piece. And it has nothing to do with me, but I'm the message deliverer. I get to deliver that and the province gets to give the message that they didn't raise taxes. So it creates this dynamic of I have to deliver the message, so I'm the bad guy. But I think the other piece that goes on, on, on um, noticed, and, and Hythe is a great example of this, and Brian can talk to it a little bit more, but I, I think, Brian, you had said it was 44% of um, Hythe's assessment base so where we determine 44% of it in height doesn't pay property tax because it's exempt. So schools, um, you know, uh, churches, uh, social service buildings there, they don't pay that. Most of those are provincial infrastructure. So the remaining part of height has to cover because they still have to put a road to the school. I still have to maintain that road to the school. I have to make sure there's sidewalks to the school. So my residents, like every other municipality, has to pay for that road and that sidewalk, but the province isn't paying their share for us to maintain their provincial infrastructure. You know, and the last time I looked, the, I, every time I have to renew my license, I still have to pay that bill. I, I don't get the option of not paying the bill. Um, you know, so they're not paying their share for the infrastructure they're using in our communities and they're reducing the, you know, it used to be grants in lieu. We're not seeing those grants anymore. They're cutting funding for capital projects, which pays for roads and sidewalk replaces, replacements. So how do we maintain that? Um, and, and, you know, my residents are paying for that. So it's great for them to say they're cutting, holding their line low or cutting their taxes. But it's because they're putting more burden on municipalities to cover their share. Hmm. 
Great comment here from Logic Kelly speaking, who's been really active. Actually, our live chat's been so engaged through the course of this conversation. It's been great. A lot of people that, at least on the surface, appear to know what they're talking about here. We're getting some great insights. But but Logic Kelly speaking just says, yes, yes. Like, where can we get the most societal value out of all of our collective resources, which ultimately, I guess, when it comes down to it, is a pretty great way in one sentence to summarize this entire conversation. It feels like the type of conversation where I should end by asking the three of you to 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 give us, you know, we oftentimes ask for a call to action. And I think we've talked about a lot here. And there's there's a lot of, of, of theory here. And there's a lot of things about MSI and percentages of funding and user fees. And people are going to go, boy, this is the type of interview where you might go back and listen to it for a second time. But I want to I want to end with a focused call to action. And Mayor Peterson, maybe I'll start with you. I mean, this can be giving uh, real talk audience members something specific to email elected representatives about. It could be asking them to specifically prompt conversation with their neighbors over the fences. Do you understand this? Do we know about this or or something else? Uh, Mayor Peterson, what would it be simply stated? It would be the political will to work with all municipalities to spend that dollar as efficiently as possible, uh, right? We don't see that political will and we haven't seen that for a long time. And it's been a continuing problem. Barry talks about savings. That's those savings are actually trusts that are held for the residents and uh, our provincial government and federal government have not done well in managing trust. And now they want to get in to the, small trust that uh, municipalities have preserved you know they need to look differently at things they need to start to try to maximize the dollars uh counselor uh tanya what, what would you say would be a you know simply stated call to action i think we need to look at a whole at a different tax system how, how and again it comes back to value for money brian said it well how do we use the limited dollars we have? We are in, you know, we've got a fiscal challenge in this province. How do we make it better? Because we, as a province, can solve our own problems, but we have to have some hard conversations around what are our outcomes and what are we trying to deliver and who is best to deliver that solution or that outcome instead of trying to be the savior for everyone and, and saving nothing. Mayor Morshida, we'll give you last word today. Well, you, you know, uh, first of all, thanks. Uh, and thanks to Tanya and Brian and, and, and thanks to yourself for the good questions and the engagement. But I think really for me, it, it, it's about uh, we need to have continual conversations among ourselves to change this. Um, the fact remains that um, we all want good services. We want to live in great communities, but uh, we're, we, we stop uh, when when it when we need to help each other out and do it, I think there's lots of opportunities. Um, and you know what? We don't need the pro provincial government for this part. Lots of opportunities intermunicipal uh, intermunicipally to cooperate and share both resources and costs to make sure uh, services get delivered. And and I encourage all of uh, AUMA members as well as uh, rural members to get in rooms, have these conversations that make better use of our money. And let's deliver the services that we can for as, as little as possible. We know it's possible, uh, but we always seem to stop uh, stop at these artificial borders. So for me, it would be uh, for residents out there that are listening, talk to your elected officials, start talking with your municipally elected. The election's coming up. 
Talk about how they're going to be doing, how supplying these services. How are they going to collaborate? How are they going to work with uh, with their neighbors to provide uh, exactly what our community needs at a price they're, they're willing to pay? And uh, let's go into this election with eyes wide open on this regard. So that would be a great thing for people to take away today. Eyes wide open. I love it. And, and you know, I mean, that's part of the reason I think why people tune into and participate in a show like this is to have focused talking points, to have intuitive questions and, and have meaningful expectations of, of people who are seeking uh, the honor. And of course, the responsibility of, of public service and public office. I'm really grateful that the three of you have cleared the time to speak with us this morning. Mayor Brian Peterson of the village of Hythe. Uh, I'll say for now, Mayor, though it's not a shot. That's just the facts. Uh, Tanya Thorne, a counselor to the town of Okotoks, who wants to be mayor this fall. And Mayor Barry Morishita, the city of Brooks, uh, also the president of the AUMA. You can learn more about what the AUMA does by visiting its website, auma.ca. You can see a ton of resources there, including that pledge. People seeking elected office uh, are being encouraged to take the pledge. You can read more on the website. Thanks to the three of you and have a wonderful weekend. Thanks very much, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Good Thank stuff. You. Great to have that conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, while you're online, you may also want to check out right now powered.ca out of Athabasca University. We were, we were talking earlier this week about workplaces that are practicing allyship. You know, a lot of organizations don't know necessarily where to start in a month like Pride Month or Indigenous History Month, where you say, well, we're looking as a corporation or as a community to build more inclusive communities in the workplace. Power Ed can help organizations begin to take those small steps. It's a new micro course. takes about six hours to complete, maybe a couple of afternoons, called Embracing Allyship and Inclusion. Helps organizations recognize discriminatory practices, develop inclusive behaviors, and lay the groundwork for meaningful allyship in the workplace and beyond. Now, to celebrate Pride Month, PowerEd is offering a 10% discount for Real Talk audience members. Visit powered.ca, use the promo code REALTALK10. That's the number 10, REALTALK10 at checkout to claim your offer. We also wanted to remind you that Campers Village has the best gear for right here. Campers Village, still a family-owned business. It's two brothers with two stores in Edmonton, one store in Calgary. But of course, they're allowing uh, for Canadians across the country to get their hands on the best gear for getting outside by way of their online store at campers-village.com. You can buy online, get gear shipped right to your door. They'll ship nationwide. Most orders over 49 bucks ship for free this is clothing uh, lifestyle clothing backcountry clothing backpacking boots trail runners sandals and more rooftop tents heated camp chairs which i'm still obsessing over since i first heard that they existed kayaks canoes propane fire bowls and so much more at campers-village.com our friends at Friesen Brothers want to remind you that their 16 Alberta locations right now are chock full of BC cherries. That's right. They love supporting local, supporting Canadian growers. has been very important to Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years. Also wanted to let you know that their bees, yeah, the bees have moved into their South Edmonton store. The rooftop display, absolutely amazing as Friesen Brothers is paving the way for very local, like rooftop local local fresh 
Honey. You can learn more, plus, about Alberta Pork Month. That's June by visiting Friesen Brothers online. The team at Eden Landscaping wants to remind you that it's not too late right now to give Mike and the team a call. You can find them online at landscapeedmonton.ca. It feels like summer's already in full swing, but still plenty of time to realize your dream of transforming your outdoor space to bring your outdoor space to life. They've got more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. Look at this. The ultra-modern trapezoid house. Natural beauty of the pergola. Stunning stonework. They do it all, including outdoor kitchens, swim spas, and more. You can find the team at uh, Eden Landscaping online at landscapeedmonton.ca. And a big shout-out to the team at Westworld Computers, keeping this show powered day in and day out. It's what they've been doing for businesses and residences for more than 40 years. Still family-owned, still shipping nationwide at westworld.ca. If you visit them online, you can also book your appointment today with one of their service techs over the last 40 years. They've seen it all at Westworld Computers and westworld.ca. If you've enjoyed the conversation that you've been having here on the show this week, if you've learned something, we encourage you to smash that like button. If you're following us on YouTube, you know what I'd really love to see is more people that download this podcast. Leave us a review mm. on whatever podcast platform you use, whether you're, you're getting it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or somewhere else. We are very grateful for the feedback, for the ratings that you leave us and for the comments. These things, as we're learning, I didn't know anything about this a year ago. I had no idea about this a year ago, but that stuff goes a long way in ensuring that the algorithms are recognizing real talk and it broadens our footprint so more people can be privy to these types of conversations. We're so grateful for everybody that does subscribe to real talk that shows up every single morning for conversations like the ones we've had today. Uh, you can do the review. You can also just do a rating. So if you're like, I don't have time yeah. to write something, I don't, yeah. I don't have time. Just hit like you can figure like, five stars. Of course, we recommend Duh. five. We recommend five stars. <laughs> <laughs> but the, I mean, the really great thing is, I always think of it as like, when do I get, uh, when I get a recommendation from you know a sponsor or something, um, or like a a paid advertisement, it's kind of like okay, that that's that's good. But when I hear it from a friend and someone's like, hey, have you heard? You know, real talk, I I always, I'm like, okay, I trust their judgment. I trust their taste. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why how I always think about the, the ratings and reviews. It's a really great way. Yes, algorithms, but also like, oh, so-and-so really likes it. I Or, you know, 500 people love it. I, 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 yeah. I, I might just like it. I might just like it. I love watching Sam watch me talk about algorithms because Sam's being so he knows that I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about when it comes to algorithms. Well, like, I barely know what I'm talking about with them, too. So, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. We've got some really great comments that we continue to see here on the on the on the uh, live chat here. Larry says, for example, Ryan, what about a, a panel we could have on the show with rural and urban municipalities, officials and maybe Minister McIver, provincial mm-hmm. minister, to answer real talkers questions, explain why the United Conservatives are constantly downloading costs onto Albertans. Larry, it sounds like a great idea in theory, and we'll mm-hmm. continue to, to put interview requests in with the provincial government. James says, what a great panel. I always love hearing from those folks at the AUMA. Hope says, I will ask and challenge any candidate regarding their stance on dark money and PACs on political action committees. Uh, says uh, one woman in my writing has Tory colors or conservative colors on her lawn signs for a municipal election says I'm not surprised somehow there's a lot of people I saw one down in Calgary people that are running for municipal office that are kind of 
it looks to me like co-opting colors or branding like the the font is just off like one guy's down in calgary says you're a conservative candidate and the conservative of the capital c but the font is just different enough from the federal conservatives i think to to, to have him sort of avoid although who knows maybe the party wouldn't care i don't know but but mm-hmm. it, it almost looks to me like you know maybe it's just a bit of a what am i looking for like a copyright violation or something like that but people people you know people get there's tricksters there's tricks people are subtle in in the signage and advertising and and one of the things that i think is really important um and one of the things that i would think would be a mark of success or a gauge of success for us here on the show is to have real talkers saying because of that interview or because of that conversation i feel like i'm better prepared to ask meaningful questions of political candidates when they come to my door. Mm. But if you think about it, no one's really expecting the. And I don't know what the knocking, I would imagine door knocking will be back. Um, I was walking around uh, in the South side and I, I ran into somebody that was door knocking. knocking. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, and I think, you know, I mean, sort of this, you know, depending on what happens and everything, but you know, your province is so-called reopening and and Mm. the more people getting vaccinated, you'll probably have more people showing up and knocking on doors. But, but you know, when you're put on the spot, when a candidate's there and they want to leave some literature with you or drop it off. And most people probably myself included would be like, uh, like you feel like you should have a good question. Uh, what's your stance on uh, uh, you know calcium chloride right spraying calcium chloride on the road what's your thought on calcium chloride um, and, I, and I'd like for people to feel like hey listen you know you feel better informed or you feel more dialed in by listening to these types of conversations because that's how you separate uh, to use the biblical reference if you'll forgive me the wheat from the chaff uh the candidates that deserve your consideration versus the ones that are smoke and mirrors right that's a biblical reference isn't it i just always thought it was probably just a farming reference that's what i thought uh being from alberta i just always thought my mom was talking about farming well maybe i'm wrong Maybe I don't, you know, it wouldn't be a the lot first of biblical time, references it? kind of are farming references. Yeah. 100%. There's, there's a big Venn diagram between those two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, someone in the live chat will know we could check in and somebody here. And, and I mean, it would be exciting, you know, if somebody did uh, know because, of course, they would be awarded probably three points um, if they were able to. No, of course, the only problem is that the points count toward nothing and there's no way to redeem them. But still, you could. Uh, That's a problem. You, you could walk out. Hope says she thinks it's biblical. Um, but, uh, you know, this could be uh, this could be something where where you could still walk with your head held high over through the weekend, having just earned three points on Real Talk. I think it's self-respect. It's 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 mostly self-respect. Yeah, that's what it all comes and down to. You that little spring in your step, a little spring in the step. Um, I'm going to be honest with uh, you, and I've not even told the team this yet. They don't know that their Friday is going to start a little bit early. And full disclosure, I'm going to tell you why um, for purely personal reasons Um, and and, and not just because of of how I'm feeling after getting my second shot yesterday. I just keep saying that because I'm so excited (laughs) to be vaccinated. But today is our little man's kindergarten graduation. And so this is a very big deal in the Jesperson household. And so I'm actually going to cut bait here in just a second because it's very important. Now it's an online, it's a virtual celebration, of course, but it just reminded me, we we read in Positive Reflections on Monday, a letter from Kim, who is celebrating the class of 2021. And Kim was talking in particular about grade 12 students. Mm. But I've just been thinking today how proud I am and how proud I know all of us are for all of you Yes, for sure. The administrators and the teachers and the TAs and the EAs and the 
Are buses running right now? School buses? I don't I even know. So, yeah. School buses? I would imagine they are, right? Yeah, the school today's bus the last day of school. Today is the last day, and it's a huge deal, but so proud of all these young people, these students from preschool and kindergarten all the way up to grade 12 and even university that have uh, that have endured, really, and I use the word intentionally, endured so many different challenges, and yet you have persevered, and we're all so very, so, so very proud of you. Of course, we want to remind you before we go how proud we are to partner up with the team at Local Waste. Now, you know that they've been in the business of of waste management, recycling, helping business owners from the small businesses all the way up to the big players find the best fit when it comes to who it is providing services. Local Waste has been growing their family-owned business for many years because they've earned the trust of their clients. No BS and integrity. Both of those phrases are literally hanging on the wall when it comes to local waste headquarters. They want to remind you that there's huge value when it comes to spending your money in a local economy as opposed to a non-local business. If you're making a decision on your company's waste solutions, consider local waste. You can get in touch with Mikkel, Lauren, and Chris anytime via localwaste.ca. You know, every Friday, the team at Local Waste also provides us with an opportunity to blow off a little steam. Email submitted to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's a little something we like to call trash talk. This from Nicole, who says, guess what, Jespo? Today is my last day working for the most toxic company I've ever encountered. So in celebration, I am going to talk some trash. Nicole says, COVID protocols throughout the company are bare minimum. They've never been enforced. Doors constantly slammed by our man-child of a supervisor with zero leadership abilities. Racist remarks, mocking voices used regularly, the harassment rampant. This place sounds like an HR nightmare, right? Well, it is. Luckily for them they don't have an hr department so any attempt to hold anybody accountable for their bullshit behavior is lost on deaf ears i've never been surrounded by so many lazy ignorant people in my life i'd rather be unemployed than spend another minute in that dumpster fire i have two words for my former management and co-workers not the two you're thinking do better says Nicole, an exhausted office professional. How about this one from Michael, who says, you know, we're doing okay here in Alberta, but vaccinated means two doses, not one. But hey, anything for the stampede, right? Who cares about things like protecting people when there's campaign money to be made? The low people, the plebs, those of us on the street, what does it matter to those that sit high and mighty dining at the table of white cloths high above the crowds? That from Michael. What about this one from Tyler, who says, I just want to hug my friends again. I just want to sit around a kitchen table and hug my mom. He says, why can't we just lift small gathering restrictions? Then if that goes well, open up public events with masking. And then if that goes well, lift mask mandates. If this goes bad again, this Delta variant, frankly, says Tyler, earmuffs, kids, we're fucked. Achieving compliance again will be next to impossible. Masks are a minor inconvenience. I don't want to see the medical officer of health acting like a government puppet. How about this one from Greg, who says, I just watched video of conservative leader Aaron O'Toole condemning people canceling Canada Day celebrations. He says, even though I did have some idea about the treatment of indigenous children in residential schools, 
even with recent events, I will not be celebrating Canada Day this year. It has nothing to do with cancel culture. It's an acknowledgement I cannot celebrate a country that for over 100 years participated in the mistreatment and genocide of Indigenous people. The real cancel culture is when a government removes kids from their familial home, cuts their hair, changes their clothes, and brainwashes the culture right out of them. I'm disgusted that Mr. O'Toole decided that people like me are the problem. I'm disgusted conservatives did nothing to stop the genocide. I'm disgusted liberals did nothing to stop the genocide. I would like to see leadership in this time. That from Greg. What about this one from Janelle, who says, Truth and reconciliation begins with truth. 751 unmarked graves. This is the truth. She says, you want to know what else is the truth? The truth is that the person, Chris Champion, that helped write our new social studies curriculum is a residential school denier. You know what else? Truth. Janelle says, the truth is that we need to dispose of this draft if truth and reconciliation are ever going to happen. Racism has no place in our curriculum. Racists have no place in our schools. We need to stand up to white supremacy and racism in Alberta. That from Janelle. And this one from Shiv. Shiv says, you want real talk? I'm sick and tired of queer issues being placed on the back burner in Canada. I'm tired of the national narrative that we've solved the gay issue and can move on singing Kumbaya and feeling good about ourselves because we're better than the states. I'm tired of the media focusing on the blood donation ban as if that's the most pressing challenge. Yes, it's discriminatory. Yes, it's fucked up, but it's far down on my priority list of conversations we need to have. Police reported hate crimes hate crimes motivated by sexual orientation in Canada have increased 47% in the last six years. Years. And let's talk about suicide rate among, suicide rates among young gay youth. He says, the real talk is I'm sick of tr- everybody treating this issue like something we've already won, and now we're just putting the ice on the cake. He says, the truth is, is that even in a place as progressive in Canada, this is rampant. It's worse in Alberta than it is nationwide, a province I otherwise love and am proud to live in, but queer people still live in fear in our society. We get ruthlessly attacked for going to the beach, and nobody seems to care. It's time to pay attention, says Shiv. I love it when people like Shiv push us to be better. I love it when you pour it out. Your heart, you let us read it. You show us exactly what it is that makes you tick, makes you happy, and pisses you off. It's all part of keeping it real. You can email us anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. This week has meant so much to me that you've been here with us for these tough conversations. We'll pick it up again on Monday. Have an amazing weekend. One love.